Welcome to the Common Sense Party Podcast. Rate us, review us on Google. You can reach us at the Common Sense Party Pod at Instagram or at Gmail. And let's get to it. All is lost. Welcome to the show. Today is June 12th, and today we're talking about, as usual, voting rights. And Joe Manchin has came out this week against the Voting Rights Act because he says it's non... What's he called it? It's non-bipartisan, but what he's doing is he is fucking the country up, man. Because he's giving the power to the minority in the Senate, and he is, again, he's part of the problem. And the reason we are going for... going for this is because he he has dark money dark money in the everything is dark money in his state because he wants to stay in power because if again just like your power passes everything changes uh, example Right to 
1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed, voter suppression looked like hoses and dogs and physical intimidation and uh, literacy tests. Voter intimidation looked like violence, physical violence. Voter suppression today is different in the sense that the goal is ultimately the same. The procedure used to suppress the vote is different. Today, voter suppression looks like voter purges. Voter suppression looks like polling place closures and consolidations. And voter suppression looks like complicated eligibility requirements. They no longer simply say, well, we're going to make it harder for African Americans to register to vote. What they do is they impose mechanisms making it more difficult for people to vote. So how did we get here? If the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was supposed to protect minority communities against voter suppression, why do so many of these communities have difficulty accessing the ballot today? Over the last several decades, the Supreme Court has weakened the Voting Rights Act almost at every turn, or interpreted it in a way I think that Congress never intended. Most recently in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the most effective part of the Voting Rights Act, the coverage formula that then decided which state and local governments had to pre-clear or pre-approve any change that affected voting. By doing that, the Supreme Court has unleashed numerous voting laws passed by state and local governments that discriminate against minority voters, make them worse off than they were before, and deny them uh, access, equal access to the franchise and participation in government. Okay, it's clear that something needs to change. So what can be done about this going forward? At the federal level, there are two pieces of legislation that would dramatically change access to the right to vote for the better for Americans. And those are uh, colloquially called H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. H.R. 1 is an omnibus bill that's really aimed at modernizing our election system. It expands on essentially every form of voter suppression that we've seen and tries to tackle it piece by piece. So from guaranteeing early voting in federal elections, to cleaning up voter registration practices and preventing malicious voter purges. It includes common sense solutions like automatic voter registration, early voting, vote by mail procedures, and makes those uniform across the country so that your access to the ballot doesn't depend on whether or not you live in Alabama or Washington. But we also have HR4 renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And that would restore the parts of the Voting Rights Act that were gutted in 2013 Shelby County v. Holder and create a new preclearance mechanism. Any state that has had repeated violations with respect to voting rights in the last 25 years would be subject to that preclearance formula and would have to preclear their voting laws with the Department of Justice. I'm excited to look forward to a, a discussion about voting rights that's not always on the defensive and thinking about how we can press against um, cutbacks and rollbacks on the right to vote. Instead, think about what a 21st American democracy should look like. We can have same-day registration, we can have online registration, we can have automatic voter registration. 
and we can take that kind of modernized approach to all parts of our elections. We can have vote centers so that you can go to the polling location that's closest to your work, even if it's not the polling location for where you live. We can make sure that we have early voting hours that are expansive and that include weekends. These are all things we can imagine and make happen. I became a voting rights attorney so that I can protect all individuals, but especially underserved and underprivileged individuals, right to vote. As a child, I heard stories of my grandfather in Dallas fighting in the 1940s and 1950s to make sure that black individuals in Dallas could have the right to vote. This spirit has found its way into me as I currently seek to fight for the voting rights of all individuals, not just in Dallas, Texas, but across the country, whose votes are still being challenged and whose voting rights are still being trained. Yeah, it's 2021 and we're still trying to get voting rights back from what was gutted in 2013. Like I said, these old white men are are trying to relive, keep themselves in power. Democrats and Republicans are doing the same thing. Old white men are trying to keep power. And it's really fucked up. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Joe Manchin, but I'm gonna gonna listen to what Obama said about the Republicans. So, rate us, review us at Google, SoundCloud, review us, make us the number one podcast. Let's help our brothers and sisters. Yeah, poor, not black. But poor, disenfranchised, poor, poor people to get to the vote so we can get, so we can get these old white fuckers out and check out what Obama said. Since the Obamas left the White House, it was a moment the former president describes as bittersweet in his book. Hello, everybody. Partly because they were leaving, partly because of what he thought might happen to the country. Wrote about Sarah Palin, about her brief ascendancy, and you talk about dark spirits that had long been lurking on the edges of the Republican Party coming center stage. Did you ever think it would get this dark? No. I, I, I thought that there were enough guardrails institutionally um, that even after Trump was elected, uh, that you would have uh, the so called Republican establishment would say, okay, you know, it's a problem if um, the White House isn't, doesn't seem to be concerned about Russian meddling, uh, or it's a problem if um, we have um, a, a president who's saying that, you know, neo-Nazis are marching in Charlottesville, there are good people on both sides, you know, that that's a little bit beyond the pale. Um, and the degree to which uh, we did not see that Republican establishment say, hold on, time out, that's not acceptable, that's not who we are, but rather be cowed into accepting it, and then finally culminating in uh, January 6th, where 
what originally was, oh, don't worry, uh, this isn't going anywhere, we're just letting Trump and others bet. And then suddenly you now have large portions of, of elected Congress going along with uh, the falsehood that uh, there were problems with the election. And, and the leadership of the GOP, briefly for a, you know, one night when they still had the sort of Yes. Sense of fear in them, yeah. you know, going against the president. And then, poof, suddenly everybody was back in line. Now, what that, the reason for that is because the base believed it. And the base believed it because this had been told to them not just by the president, but by the media that they watch. And nobody stood up and said, stop, this is enough. This is not true. I won't say nobody. Let me correct it. There were some very brave people who did their jobs, like the Secretary of State of Georgia, who was then viciously attacked for it. And all those congressmen started looking around and they said, you know what, I'll lose my job. I'll, I'll get voted out of office. Another way of saying this is I didn't expect that there would be so few people who would say, well, I don't mind losing my office. Because this is too important. America's too important. Some things are more important than Our democracy is too important. We didn't see that. Now, uh, I, I, you know, I'm still the hope and change guy. And so my hope is, is that uh, the tides will turn. Um, but that does require each of us to, um, to, to understand that this, this experiment in democracy is not uh, uh, self-executing. It, it doesn't happen just automatically. It happens because each successive generation says these values, these truths, we hold self-evident. This is important. We're going to invest in it and sacrifice for it, and we'll stand up for it, even when it's not politically convenient. One of the things you write, we need to explain to each other who we are and where we are going. I, I mean, as a, somebody who has dedicated myself to storytelling, I, that really resonates with me, but I wonder, we, are we, as a country, still willing to listen to each other's stories? Well, I think that this is the biggest challenge we have, is that um, we don't have the kinds of shared stories that we used to. There's always been a division along lines of race, right? It, 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 you, know, uh, you know, we have 400 years of... Uh, whites and blacks not being able to have shared experiences because of slavery and segregation and so forth. But even within, uh, let's say, the white community, right, the stories of kids who are growing up in Manhattan and the stories of kids who are growing up in Abilene, Texas, and the stories of kid who's growing up in Montana, and, uh, those stories no longer meet. Um, Partly because um, of the segment, you know, the siloing of the media, um, the internet, entertainment, um, we occupy different worlds, and it becomes that much more difficult for us to hear each other, see each other. The thing I learned first as an organizer, and then as an elected official, as a politician, was when you start hearing people's stories, you always find a thread of your own story in somebody else. And the minute that recognition happens, that becomes the basis for a community. But it does seem like 
something has changed so that it's become so extreme that we're not even allowing ourselves to get into a position where we can see that commonality. I've heard in the past you talk about when you were starting out in politics, you would go down to southern Illinois to very conservative districts. Yeah, they give me a hearing. Right. Yeah. No, and I think that's changed. Part of it is the nationalization of media, the nationalization of politics. Uh, You know, uh, the fact is that, um, you know, you used to have a bunch of local newspapers, local TV stations, People weren't having these highly ideological debates, but they were kind of more focused on what's happening day to day. And part of it is also the structure of our economy and our communities. Look, it it used to be that a high school, the average high school in America, the average public high school, you would have the banker's kid and the janitor's kid in the same school. And they'd interact and their parents would be both going to the same football game and would have to know each other. And if it turned out that there was a talented kid of a janitor who also happened to be on the football team, the banker president might say, hey, why don't you come work at the bank here? Because he knew each other. He knew that person. Now we have more economic uh, stratification and segregation. You combine that with racial stratification and the siloing of the media, so you don't have just Walter Cronkite delivering the news, but you have a thousand different venues. Uh, All that has contributed to that sense that we don't have anything in common. And so, so much of our work uh, is going to have to involve not just policy, but it's also how do we create institutions and uh, occasions in which we can come together and have a conversation. In uh, in Promised Land, you write, our democracy seems to be teetering on the brink of a crisis. Since you wrote that, there was the the attack on the Capitol. You got the the big lie being pushed continually by not only the former president, but Republicans in Congress. Are we still just teetering on the brink, or are we in crisis? Well, I, I, (laughs) uh, I I think we have to worry when one of our major political parties is willing to embrace uh, a way of thinking about our democracy that uh, would be unrecognizable and unacceptable even five years ago or a decade ago. Um, When you look at some of the laws that are being passed uh, at the state legislative level, where legislators are basically saying, uh, we're going to take away the certification of election processes from civil servants, secretaries of state, people who are just counting ballots. And we're going to put it in the hands of partisan legislatures who may or may not decide uh, that a state's uh, uh, electoral votes should go to one person or another. Um, And when that's all done against the backdrop of large numbers of Republicans having been convinced wrongly that uh, there was something fishy about the last election, we've got a problem. And, and, you know, this is part of the reason why uh, I think the the conversation around voting rights at a national level is important. This is why I think uh, conversations about some of the institutional and structural barriers to our democracy working better, like the elimination of the filibuster or uh, 
the end to partisan gerrymandering is important. But this is why it is also important for us to figure out how do we start once again being able to tell a common story about where this country goes. And I, that is not just the job of politicians, although I think elected officials have an important role. That's where the media is going to have to play an important role. Uh, that is where companies have to play an important role. Uh, you know, I, all of us as citizens have to recognize that um, the path towards uh, uh, an undemocratic America is not going to happen in just one bang. It's, it, happy, it happens in a series of steps. And when you look at what's happened in places like Hungary and Poland, that obviously did not have the same traditions, democratic traditions that we did. They weren't as, as deeply rooted. Um, and yet, as recently as uh, 10 years ago, uh, we're functioning democracies and now uh, essentially have become authoritarian. Democracy does die in a military coup. Yes. Democracy dies at the ballot box. That's exactly right. And, and, and you know, Vladimir Putin gets uh, elected with a majority of Russian voters. But uh, none of us would claim that that's the kind of democracy that we like I said, man, he's the best president ever, and I still wish he could run a third time. But like he said, we don't have any common stories. The local papers are gobbled up by the the big guys, Fox. All those stuff are gone. I was like, why don't we? Why we don't have the same stories? Because we don't. We don't. Um, Uh, we don't um, I'm, I'm lost for words right now because because we don't um, we don't talk to each other we don't we don't look at each other in the eye and we have the same values anymore like yeah, we might live in the same city, but because we listen to one-sided party that is out for greed and not out for the people, it's just crazy. The top 1% has not paid taxes in the last 10 years. That's good tax money that goes back into the system, and that could help all of America to to lift. Why, why are we so hell-bent on being one portion of being the best at the expense of of others i don't understand that sometimes that just because we can make more money doesn't mean that we have to we don't have to make we don't have to trample the poor to get rich it's like we forgot how to chew gum and walk at the same time we can make money and also build up our community well, this is a Common Sense Party podcast. Rate us, review us, uh, give us a good rating, make us the number one podcast. Let's get these bills passed, and we'll be right back. And we're back. This is a Common Sense Party podcast. Rate us, review us on Google. You can reach us at the Common Sense Party Pod at Instagram or Gmail. Any questions? Uh, right now, we're going to discuss the infrastructure bill and see why 
the Republicans are really against this bill, and this is via Politico. Infrastructure plan. We're going to get a little bit deeper into the weeds on it, uh, what's in it, how he's paying for it, and what the prospects are for moving it through Congress. So what is in this plan? You probably heard the, the numbers thrown around anywhere from 2 to $3 trillion, depending on how it's uh, sliced and diced. Think of it as three buckets that are roughly $600 billion. The first big bucket is about $621 billion, that's a billion with a B. Huge investment in electrical uh, vehicles. That's not actually building anything, that's just getting all of us to try and go electric. Then you get into the, the transportation components that are actual physical infrastructure. There's $115 million for roads and bridges. That's what most Americans think of uh, as infrastructure. Public transit, railways, disaster resilience, a lot of that has to do with climate change mitigation. Airports, waterways, and, and ports. For all the talk about how infrastructure can and should be a bipartisan issue, Democrats and Republicans, um, just like every other issue, they think about this a lot differently. Joe Biden wants to come along and jack up taxes. It provides more subsidy for electric cars than it does for roads and bridges combined. So in this category of buildings and utilities, you have a lot of money, you have about $10 billion to fix things like the infrastructure of community colleges, federal buildings, veterans hospitals, childcare facilities, public schools, the electric grid, our water system, eliminating lead, pipes. They also throw into that category $100 billion for high-speed broadband. We might not think of um, the internet as uh, infrastructure, but that is very much the way the Biden administration is thinking about it. And then this final bucket, also around $600 billion, is jobs and innovation. This is for big investments in American manufacturing, since a huge component of this bill is investing in green technology. The Biden administration is marrying their desire for more American manufacturing with their desire to combat climate change and is spending huge amounts of money on giving a boost to American battery manufacturing or solar uh, or wind power. And this is sort of a, a controversial area because there are some people in, in the green movement who will say, you know what? We don't really have the time to build an American battery uh, manufacturing capacity. It's cheaper just to buy it from China. This sometimes is called industrial policy. It used to be kind of a, uh, a, a bad word in American politics. You didn't want the government uh, choosing winners and losers. But this bill really embraces industrial policy. It embraces the idea that the government should be helping certain industries. Now Trump also talked a lot about um, bringing American manufacturing back and he pretty much didn't care what was manufactured, right? Democrats do, at least their policies will lead to certain industries declining, for instance the coal industry, right? And so there's a lot of money in this bill for industries like that, for, for workers who suffer through dislocation as we move to a green economy, for job retraining, and tax breaks uh, to develop new skills. One of the ideas infused in the infrastructure bill has to do with equity. When you start getting into the line-by-line -line spending items, 
there's room for a lot of disagreement between liberals and conservatives. The biggest single pot of money is this $400 billion for in-home caregiving. Most of that money goes to Medicaid. The Biden administration has talked previously about a, a caregiving crisis, and this is meant to address that, to boost the salaries of people in that uh, profession. It will have a disproportionate, a positive impact on a group of Americans that happen to have been uh, very important to getting Joe Biden uh, elected, and that is women of color. And I think there are some people who are scratching their head as to why it ended up in this jobs bill. We have not seen any uh, influential Republicans come out and talk about this bill as something that they're likely to support. They've seized on how Joe Biden wants to pay for this. He wants to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. So I asked uh, Chief Staff Ron Klain about this the other day. What's his argument to those folks? Some rate lower than 35, but not all the way down to 21, was where this should land. There's a lot of policy conversation around being in the mid-20s, and I think Trump kind of came up with the surprise 21% rate. So I, I do think uh, between 21 and 35, there's a lot of room, and we think 28 is a pretty reasonable number between the two. It's much more likely that they will do what they did uh, with the COVID relief bill and use the process of budget reconciliation. If he passes this enormous bill, um, it will be um, a huge achievement that he will use in his re-election campaign, and most Republicans don't don't want that. Even if he passes nothing else for the next two years, that's more than a lot of other presidents have done in their, their first term. Yep, that's infrastructure. Yep, the Republicans don't want that because poor people will poor people will benefit and and the corporate tax rate will go up and they have to pay more. Again, the Republican Party motto is you can do better as long as you don't do uh, as long as you don't do better than me. And they hate when they take their money and others benefit from it. But that's how it is. But this is how America's work from time to time. That the ones who are making the most money can. can help the others and right now we're going to go to the dude that is holding up infrastructure voting rights everything of the Biden Biden plan because he's an idiot uh, this is Joe Manchin on Face the Nation check this out Joe Manchin of West Virginia good morning Senator good morning John how are you doing all right this morning a lot of democrats say that you are standing in the way of their priorities and one of them appears to be the president he said earlier this week in tulsa talking about the frustration of getting things passed he said two members of the senate who vote more with my republican friends depending on how you see it he was either being honest about the limitations on what he can get done or he's saying you're standing in the way of his agenda well i think that was taken out of content john uh, the president knows how the senate works better than probably any senator setting today, or as well as any senator setting today. He understands we're a deliberate body because we're supposed to be a deliberate body to cool things off that come from the House. That's what we're doing. We're looking every way we can to bring this country together and unite the country. That's what I'm doing. And I think anybody, whether it be a Democrat or a Republican, that's sitting today in the Senate 
know who I, knows who I am. And I've always been about bipartisanship. I've always tried to work in a bipartisan way, and I've voted in a bipartisan way in the last 10 years of the Senate. So I'm doing what I have always done. Let's unite this country. We don't need to be divided any further. What the White House would say is on an issue, let's say, infrastructure, which is key to the president's economic agenda, what they would say is there's a way to do this with Democrats alone. It's the same method that was used to pass President Trump's tax cut. But you won't agree to do that. And since you won't agree to do that, it takes all of the leverage away from the White House. Now, in order to pass an infrastructure package, it requires 60 votes to get past a filibuster. So it's not just that you're, you want bipartisanship. They would argue what you're doing is basically putting all the negotiating leverage in the hands of those 10 Republicans that would be needed for the president to pass anything. Uh, we need to work within the framework of what we have. There's ways that we can prove, uh, you know, move forward. Let me say this. There's been seven brave Republicans that have spoken out. They have voted, whether it be impeachment or the wrongdoings of the president, uh, whether it be for a commission. We have to continue to keep striving to make sure that we can get to that 10. And that's why we're called the deliberate body. We keep working towards that goal. Well, I guess I'd, I'll, let's focus on those, on those seven. Because the, the argument is that the Senate has changed so much that the institution Joe Biden knew when he started in the 70s just doesn't exist, and that your desire for bipartisanship is a part of an older Senate. And people might use in furtherance of that argument a quote from you. You talked about the Republicans who voted against a January 6th commission. You said they were choosing to put politics and political elections above the health of our democracy. You called it unconscionable, and you said it's a betrayal of the oath we each take. Leader McConnell has said he's focused 100% on blocking the Biden agenda. So the argument would be, if that's their position, what gives you any hope that they're ever going to come over to anything that President Biden wants? Well, I, I, I think that my Republican friends and colleagues see the deadlock also. This is not something they desire or wish. Why they haven't been able to break from, uh, from Leader McConnell or the minority leader today, uh, it's, they're going to have to, to dig deep into their soul uh, the oath that we take and why we're there. Uh, I can say this, that I will commend uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer for agreeing in a, in a commission that was truly, absolutely more bipartisan than anything I've ever seen. And they did that in the spirit of trying to get Republicans to vote. You can say, well, that failed, so we give up. I don't think you give up on the first try just because you fell on something you know you did right. And I'm thinking that there's Republicans that know that the concessions were made was the right thing to do to try to start healing our country. We can't heal and unite this country if we don't know for sure what divided this country. And to have an insurrection that most every Democrat and Republican sat there together watch happening from the inside of that Capitol should have been enough of an alarm of saying, this is the first time in the history of our country anything, anything coming close to this, even the Civil War, the, the, the form of government that we have was an approach. Let me ask you about voting rights, which is another issue. Uh, you have a, an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette today. Again, it's an issue you want bipartisanship on. When you talk about deliberation and the Senate's slow moving being one of its great functions, Democrats would say, while you're waiting for bipartisanship, what's happening in the states is 300 or so bills promoted by Republicans to limit voting rights, changes in the ability to uh, overturn elections if Democrats win. They say you can't wait while that's happening in the states for voting rights to pass by a bar bipartisan margin in the Senate. Well, John, we have two bills before us, okay? We have the Voting Rights Act, which has passed over five times in our history here since 1965 in the most bipartisan way. And now we name it appropriately the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. 
We can expand that to all 50 states. We can do so much more with that. And it's starting out to be bipartisan. I have Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska signed on in a bipartisan way. And we can work on that one, which truly does protect the voting rights. But I guess, Senator... Before the People Act is much greater. If, if I could just interrupt, you know politics and how it works. Why would Republicans, when they're making all these gains in the state houses and achieving their goals in the states, why would they vote for a bill someday in the Senate that's going to take away all the things they're achieving right now in those state houses? John, they achieved what they've achieved before they weren't thinking they had to make changes. Why in the world would they want to make changes that basically subvert? Because I can tell you what goes around comes around. It could be more damaging to them, too. The bottom line is the fundamental purpose of of, of, of our democracy is the freedom of our elections. If we can't come to agreement on that, God help us, John. And someone's got to fight for this, and we've got to say, listen, the divided country that we're in today, the insurrection that we saw January the 6th, if we don't try to heal that, if we don't make every effort and go beyond the call of duty, then what are we and who are we? We've been known to go around the world and promote democracy and observe other elections. What kind of credibility do you think we have in doing that today? So I want to fight for this, and I think the Republicans will fight for this and understand we must come together on a voting rights bill in a bipartisan way. You can't divide our country further by thinking you've given leeway to one or the other. And if they think they're going to win by subverting and oppressing people from voting, they're going to lose. I'll assure you they will lose. All right, Senator Manchin, the sands have run through the app. What a dumbass. What a dumbass talking about they're going to lose. He's so damn, the dark money is so far up his ass, he's a dumbass. Because he knows that if they pass this bill, no one, no Democrat would actually win again. That's why I hate about people who think they're smarter than they're supposed to be. Democrats are going again into a gunfight with a knife. I do not know why they go into a gunfight with a knife and expecting the other side not to shoot him. He and cinema are the reasons that they want bipartisanship. No, you don't want bipartisanship, not now. This is not the time for bipartisanship. This is the time you put the hammer down. Trump showed you that when they get in power, they, that's all they're going to do. They're going to run it up. They're going to run up the score. Because uh, he's talking about he's going to do it in a bipartisan way. He's not going to do it in a bipartisan way. He's stalling. Just like the Republicans. That's their plan to, to block everything. And then when midterms come around, they gain back the House. The Senate is about 50-50. And what's his name? Need to, they might get all three again. No, they might get two. They might get the House and the Senate by the stall tactic. It worked the first time. And with willing parties like Manchin and Cinema, of course, it's going to work again. So this is my two cents because I don't understand why. Well, sorry, I do understand. I do understand why he's doing this. He, he owns hotels. He owns. He owns. He's in a corporate world. Because he. He is against. 
uh, $15 wages, wage increase is against the infrastructure bill. So guess what? You know what that means. He's never going to vote for none of that. And I really, really hope that he's out of office or he's primaried and a, de a Democrat wins his seat because he needs to get out. Because there is no way in the world we're going to get those things passed and he's still there. So this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Rate us, review us on Google. You can reach us on Instagram or on G Gmail. And we're out. All is lost. Not while I'm staying. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight.